Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we're going to be thinking and chatting to the lovely Sophie. We're going to be chatting about Sophie's career as a veterinary surgeon, really about how Sophie struggled a little bit to find her place at the beginning of her career but has now really um, developed an amazing career in the world of uh, behaviour. And and I'm really interested to chat this week because that's certainly a topic that um, I have a lot to learn about. Right, Sophie, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Um, I wonder if you can just start, um, for everyone listening, just to maybe just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how your veterinary journey started. Of course. Um, Thank you very much for having me. So, um, so my name is Sophie White. Um, I graduated from the Royal Veterinary College in 2011. Um, and initially I spent time in small animal practice here and there, travelled around quite a bit at doing different roles. And I kind of never felt like I was quite getting the role that I wanted. But I'm not sure I actually knew what that was. So I say I did a few different practices. Um, I started to have a bit more of interest in pain management. I did some acupuncture training. um, And then later on, I did a myotherapy, so like soft tissue um, diploma as well, and was quite interested in that side of things. Um, However, that sort of started to, um, I guess, evolve into an interest in behavior as well, because there's a really big overlap between pain and behavior and actually then I went and did a master's in clinical animal behavior at Lincoln University mm-hmm. in 2018 um, and that then kind of threw me into where I am now which mm-hmm. is working full-time as a veterinary behaviorist. It's really interesting because I think you know thinking back to my own vet school experience is that you know I so we we were taught behavior whatever that meant at the time by Sam Lindley um and I remember vividly um that we literally there was maybe two lectures maybe three at most you know and, and this is something that I think is really I don't know how maybe things are different different now but certainly behavior in its purest form potentially was just not it wasn't that it wasn't taught well because I I think Sam Lindley is is great but it was just not taught really in in that sense and I think as veterinary professionals we're aware of animal behavior because we are with animals all day every day but actually that kind of that teaching just wasn't there and so I uh, did you spark an interest in behavior earlier on because I what my question really comes from the fact that I just don't think there's an opportunity to because from my perspective there just wasn't the the exposure to it no uh, exactly I mean I I don't actually remember having any lectures on behavior at university. And I was, Mm. I was a geek. I would have been at every lecture. And (laughs) I I, I, I was not a geek and I would have missed those lectures. (laughs) I would have been there even if I wasn't interested then. And maybe there were a couple, but they obviously weren't very memorable because I don't remember having anything. Yeah. I say I left university really just thinking that dominance theory was right. And it's is interesting that you mentioned Sam Lindley because she did my teaching for my acupuncture. Um, and I guess that was the first time it ever come into my head because she was running a joint pain and behavior clinic um, at the time. And she kind of mentioned that. And I think that was the first vet really who I'd ever really heard of doing anything in behavior. But it grew really quite organically I guess it was just always that kind of interest um I've also always been really interested in working for charity and I was looking at some of the charity vet roles and things and I kept seeing more and more where I thought that looks pretty cool and a lot of them were behavior related as well um and then uh I got my second dog who is the problem child um and he sort of really kicked things off for me because I think I sort of suddenly realized that I had no idea what I was doing and I needed to learn really quickly. Um, and I sort of thought, well, that's not, that's not great, is it? Like, because if people were having that problem, they would probably come to me and I, I've no idea what to tell them. Yeah. One of the, one of the other things I just wanted to pick up on, just when you were talking about when you first graduated, you mentioned sort of feeling like, I don't know if you used the word loss, but you sort of sort of said that you just didn't feel like you were kind of 
getting your or you know finding your groove or whatever the term would be that's interesting isn't it I think um I don't know if you want to just talk a little bit more about that so what, what especially when you've put so much time and effort as we all do into getting this qualification and then graduating and then actually stepping back and thinking oh this I'm not really fitting into this the way I thought how, how does that kind of make you feel at that stage I guess I didn't necessarily know it was a massive problem at the time but now I just feel generally so much more settled and so much more kind of like this is what I should be doing but I always remember my first ever sort of appraisal and my first job uh, some of the feedback was that you need to accept you can't save the world and you're very strong-headed and I don't know whether that'll be a blessing or a curse and I think that was kind of the thing I never like there was just so many bits throughout my practice journeys where I was like these bits aren't quite right and I didn't feel like I could compromise on them but I also then felt like oh maybe I'm just being too picky but I think it was because it wasn't right overall like if it had been if everything else had been really good and I'd felt really satisfied yes there are bits where you just think okay that's not perfect because that's life but I think probably the reason I was finding areas where I, I wasn't really happy to, you know, compromise on was just because it wasn't really quite the right fit for me. And I think that I think that speaks to a lot of people. And I think you're actually you've said a couple of things that are just very typical of vets, you know, as far as, you know, being the geek that will attend every lecture. Good. That's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not slagging you off for that at all. Um, I was actually sorry, just to, when you when you said that, it's so funny because me obviously being the doing the job I do and specializing in internal medicine I actually this is so terrible endocrinology was taught in a whole week right so it was it was Monday to Friday and it was just the whole endocrinology small animal was in a week so I didn't go to a single one of those lectures now (laughs) I think that is as an internal medicine specialist to publicly announce that, that I just didn't attend endocrinology is so terrible and I now run an endocrinology course which means that I'm just a class A fraud so anyway <laughs> so, no I, I've, I've revised since I promise um so you know I, I but then you also went on to say look probably you know this perfectionism piece right talking about that and and I get that feeling that potentially that was that affected you and I think what I think is so lovely then about the story that you're telling is the fact that you you know it's okay to feel a bit like that particularly for those new graduates listening right and it is just about finding your lane and so many of the people we talk to doesn't matter what it is it's just finding what works for you and actually when we when we interviewed ebony uh from vet state to go diversify recently she talks about this squiggly mess you know and actually that's okay too so if you did go from doing one thing to the next thing and then jump back to the other thing i think that's all okay um and it's just finding kind of what makes you um happiest i suppose so you talked about your decision to go and do your master's. Um, so you go and do that, which is great. How do you mould what happens after that? So you've got this qualification, which obviously stands you in better better stead. But but how do you then take things forward from there? Um, so I didn't do any clinical practice and I wasn't employed for a vet as a vet for a year. I actually left, um, I guess, kind of left the profession, so to speak, in terms of actually my employment role. And I worked as a training and behaviour advisor for Dogs Trust uh, at one of their rehoming uh, centres for a year. Oh, wow. Which was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I loved it. Mm, But I guess when I sort of look back at it, I sort of think like, that's a bit mad. And quite a lot of people were like, uh, what are you doing? But I think because when I was doing my master's, I knew, like, I then had a really clear idea what I was doing. I'd kind of found what I wanted to do. And I was like, right. And I also realised that my practical skills and the experience we have of animals in the vet setting is so narrow. Like it's such a weird environment and it's that's not real life. So I really wanted to get out there and actually put some of my learning kind of to more practical use. And I say working for charity is great because I always wanted to do that as well. And just see real dogs rather than just dogs that are scared of the vet. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I, I just made me, as you were saying that, it's so true. And then you think to yourself, when owners say to me, you know, oh, God, you know, referring to their own dog, oh, they're, oh look at how terribly they're behaving, or this is awful. Um, you must, you know, as if, uh, you know, as if 
we've never seen something as bad as that before. And it's maybe sad that we all turn around and are like, no, I mean, we see this all the time. Like, I mean, it, it, this is definitely not the only dog that behaves like this in the vets. And and that's quite sad, isn't it? So unless, um, you know, because we do only see, owners are almost shocked when they're like, when we're like, oh no, we this is this is every day. You know, we see dogs behaving like this every day. And that's, I don't know, that there's a sadness to that, but equally there's only so much we can do about that or or is there more that we can do about that kind of behavior within the clinic do you think I think there's a huge amount more we can do but I think we have a huge problem with not acknowledging the issue because it's normal for us and I think is we have such a weird perception in, uh, in practice of how animals behave and as I say that's not real life like they shouldn't be behaving like that like if you saw them look like that walking down the street or if they were like that in their own home you'd realize oh there's a really big problem here and getting access to veterinary care is a huge huge problem for a lot of pets and a lot of owners feel very embarrassed and a lot of them are quite um unfortunately quite overtly shamed by some professionals and they avoid care because they can't face it. Um, and that's obviously a huge problem for their pets as well. So I think one of the areas I'm really interested in is making sure that every animal can access good care. And that that doesn't probably mean it's not gonna be sort of textbook gold standard, but it's the best that they can have that fits for them as an individual, what their behavior can manage, et cetera. But we need to make sure they can get good care, particularly considering there's so much overlap between medical and behaviour. Some of these animals probably are unwell, which is why their behaviour is so challenging, but they can't get into the vets. Mm. I think, honestly, what you said there is really interesting. And actually, we'll speak to Karen a lot as well, because I think so Karen has a rescue dog um, and has definitely had I'm, I don't want to speak for you, Karen, but certainly has had challenges getting her dog to the vets because of um fear um, you know fundamentally um and all but also Karen you've experienced that shame piece where actually you have felt some degree of shame as an owner and been made to feel that way right yeah yeah it's sad yeah and I think um yeah I, I'm sure I brought it up with you um before Scott and yeah, it's it's a horrible feeling as an owner, really. Yeah. And I do feel, <clears throat> regardless of whether it's happening or not, I do think you kind of feel a little bit judged as an owner walking in in that situation. Um, I have to say, I certainly do feel that way. And I've been given some quite terrible advice. <laughs> I'll not tell you on here. I'll tell you after. <laughs> <laughs> um, which which made which basically you know made me think you don't really don't understand my dog. So I think that's really important. And I think it's not, we're not shying away from the challenges of, of vets. And I understand like when you're literally slammed on a daily basis and, a, and a, 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 in inverted commas, difficult dog comes in, you know, all the, all that these, not these, but I mean, us as vets are doing, I speak for myself as well, is that we're just projecting partly just frustration and, and all that kind of stuff. But I think actually it comes back to the fact, and I always love this thing, that none of this is the dog's fault, right? Ever. Like none of this is ever the dog's fault. Like we, you know, they're the they're the uh the ones that are definitely not to blame. And I suppose um we and as much as you know it's like a difficult thing as well, there's so many instances now where we do um we there is a lot of negative and and, and this shaming, you know, potentially towards clients and some of their behavior. And that can be really difficult because it ends up being quite a negative spiral all round. Um, so I think it's a challenge. So clearly that's something that you are passionate about. Yeah, definitely. And I think actually there's quite a lot of similarities between uh, dogs, well, all, all animals really, pets with challenging behaviour and the situation with a lot of the brachycephalics. And obviously Lacey, who's spoken to, is really, you know, very keen on making sure we don't, um, exclude and push brachy owners away from practice we know there's a problem but there is a, a way to address that that doesn't make people want to avoid you um, and I think it's very similar often with the behavior situation is sometimes owners don't know there's an issue or they don't think their pet is posing a risk etc and we do need to educate them but we also need to educate them that we can do something about it like you don't 
you don't have to just live with a huge, huge problem. But how we broach that is really important because these having that conversation probably while the person is trying to control their dog and then everyone's very stressed in a 15 minute consult is probably not the time to do it. They're not going to take it in and it's probably not going to come across very well. So then as far as kind of, um, you know, things that I, I obviously we, we, we've not got, you know, we could speak for hours about this one thing, but but just as far as then you're kind of you're, some of your sort of tips as far as how people can manage some of this problem uh, in practice, what, what are some of the key things that people can look at uh, doing to kind of help with this issue? I think really it's having that patient centred approach. It, you need to think about what that animal can manage and what do they need and having that conversation with the owner as well. Because actually, often I think the problem is that vets are trying to do their best and they're sort of like, we have to do X, Y, Z. We have to take bloods before I give them this medication. Well, you probably can't. You might need to sedate the animal to do that. Um, So actually, do you need to do it? Or could you have a conversation with the owner and say, these are the risks if we don't do bloods first, X, Y, Z, and let them make an informed decision. I think sometimes... as a profession, we try and shoulder all responsibility, but actually owners need to be involved and they are perfectly capable a lot of the time of making informed decisions. And a lot of these animals that do find things very challenging, you're going to have to be flexible with your approach. I think it's often quite similar when you know as to when there are significant financial restrictions. You've just got to work with what you've got. Um, but it's that, it's that animal and that owner who are going to be able to tell you what you can and can't do what's going to work what's not um and I think that's really really important but I think what's also something that people are getting a bit better at um is the use of pre-visit pharmaceuticals actually accepting that you need to use drugs and that might be just giving them some drugs before they come in so say very much pre-visit and then that might be enough or it might be the fact that realistically you can't get hands on that patient unless they're sedated so you might need to give them pre-visit and then inject them when they arrive. Actually, gabapentin has potentially changed the, for me, the face of um, feline uh, medicine in some ways. And actually, uh, and, all, and trazodone in so many ways has changed the face of um, canine medicine uh, with certain patients. So those are definitely two drugs that I think are kind of, you know, alluding, you know, you were kind of alluding to. And actually, I think um, I was having a discussion actually um and again, I'm faced with this similar thing when I'm teaching about certain things. It's very easy to say, this is the gold standard way to do X, Y, and Z. But actually, that is not going to be practical for every patient. So for instance, I was, um, I'm doing a, a lower urinary tract course just now. And the gold standard way to get urine for culture is by cystocentesis. That is not going to be an easy thing to do in very many patients without sedation, etc. So it's easy for me to say that, but practically that's not always possible. Um, and I think, you know, I was saying that there was this paper that showed that when you sedated cats with ketamine and midazolam, sometimes their PCV could be 5% less than it normally is because of the sedation and really you should try and avoid sedation if you're assessing pcv but actually some cats are impossible to 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 blood sample without sedation so i think you're absolutely right i think that individual that that individual approach to each patient is probably the the most valuable thing right and and just an understanding that not every test is always possible with every single with every single patient exactly exactly and as i do think it is it is very similar to thinking about it financially because we just accept that if owners don't have money, they don't have the money. So we will do the best we can with what they've got. And, but for some reason, we're not very good sort of when the animal just says, no, no, I can't do that. Rather than just go, oh, okay, we'll think of another way. We can be very sort of narrow-minded in as much as, no, I've just, that is the best for you. You have to have it. But actually... Who's just that's not the best for them. If they can't tolerate it, if they're struggling, you know, significantly sort of psychologically, that's that's no different to if they were physically suffering. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another thing we really need to get our heads around is that essentially, uh, and certainly the literature in humans um, and everything tells us that fear and pain are actually pretty much the same. They're very, very, very similar of how things you know work in the brain 
And being really scared or being really frustrated is not acceptable. We don't still put cats upside down in a welly and castrate them, you know, without any pain relief because we realise that's mad. And we used to do it, but we can't do that anymore. What? Yeah. <laughs> is that true? Yeah. That's true. Wow. So why are we still doing nail clips where you can hear the dog screaming outside? It doesn't need its nails clipped oh. right now. And, you know, essentially you are hurting it, but that might be, you know, mentally rather than physically. Thinking about then your job now. So you've, you've, um, your journey has now brought you to the point where you are doing um, your behavior work uh, full time, which is congratulations. That is great. Um, we are very pleased for you. Um, tell me how you are doing that in this kind of, uh, well, coronavirus sort of transitional uh, world, because I, I presume you're, are you based in a building? No. So I work um, predominantly from home. So actually the way I work is a little bit different to quite a few of my colleagues in as much as I always start remotely. So um, all of my consults start with a remote consultation. Um, some clients who are long distance, we just do remote because um, there's a big need and not everyone has a very many behaviours near them. So some of them, we just work remotely. Others, um, I then go and do an in-person visit as well. Um, that I think works really well, also partly because of the type of dogs that I particularly have an interest in working with. I, I particularly like working with dogs that struggle with human-directed aggression. So a lot of those dogs really don't want me hanging around their house, annoying them. Um, so I say we do a lot of the talking and things remotely, and then I go and see them. You also have a dog, though, correct me if I'm wrong, that has problems with human directed aggression is that right yeah so I've got two dogs Ted and Elvis Ted's our big lurcher who really does struggle with lots of things behaviorally um and one of those is people um he's not keen on new people but he does also um show aggression towards us but not really anymore but if we did things he didn't like he would um a lot of that's around resources and handling um mm. And it, for me, it's just something, you know, I get used to. But I think that always helps as well with clients as you can sort of say to them, like, don't worry, it's fine. Like, you don't need to be embarrassed. You know, I, I equally, I understand what it's like trying to live with a dog like that. And it's exhausting and it can be really socially isolating. Um, and a big part of what we do is try and provide that kind of support. And it's, it's not all about addressing the dog's behaviour. It is sometimes just talking it through with the owner and helping them come to terms with with the situation as well. When when vets pick up the phone to you to make a referral, um, which is I presume the kind of way that things are 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 done, what would you say the number one reason for patients to come and see you is? Biting the owners, probably. Um okay. at the moment quite a lot of separation related issues as well, as everyone's going back to work. Mm. Um but I think probably the most common is owner directed aggression okay and do you think that the challenges that coronavirus has thrown at us all do you think that's changed the kind of landscape of the kind of behavioral cases you're seeing obviously you mentioned the um the the sort of separation stuff but do you think your world of behavior has changed in as far as the patient presentation because of coronavirus I think we're definitely seeing the knock-on effect, I think, for these kind of teenagers who suddenly, when they're out and about, people and dogs warp up to them. Like, that definitely seems to be a thing. We're having quite a lot of dogs who don't mind people, you know, just walking around out and about. But if someone tries to walk up to them or if someone walks into their house, it sort of blows their mind a bit because that didn't happen. <laughs> That's, you know, people exist two metres away from me. Um, so that often is you know can be fear related but we're seeing a lot of I see a lot of frustration related problems as well about that sort of unmet expectation that it's just suddenly like oh my god this person is behaving in a completely weird way and walking at me and then when I bark they don't leave and that's really annoying and then they're getting really frustrated um so I definitely think there's those those elements and I think another issue we sort of have is that so many people got dogs around a similar time We've got a lot of teenagers out and about <laughs> and that can be quite problematic. 
because a lot of the dogs that are meeting each other have quite similar issues. So they maybe don't have great social skills because they didn't get to maybe mix as much as puppies and things. So I think that can be tricky, particularly for people who live sort of in more built up areas where every second person, you know, got a dog and they're now all teenaged. I love that. Teen- too many teenagers. That's a nightmare, isn't it? Um, so the one of the things that I'm always interested in is that um, when someone uh, wants uh, a referral, um for a problem broken leg or you know whatever diabetes whatever then you know the kind of structure of referral within the veterinary sector within the uk is well established and you would contact your local referral center and there would probably be a number of specialists there for me certainly from my own experience as well the the referral to uh, for behavioural support um, is, I think, more challenging. I do not think, and this is only from my own experience, I do not think it's well, uh, necessarily as well structured. Um, and, and more challenging to find someone with a, a set accreditation or qualification. So you're kind of, you're going through that kind of process of understanding who you're referring to. Um, and I, I wonder whether that's something that maybe does need a some improvement or some um, some sort of improved structure for us you know as well for people that are wanting to refer on on to you is that something that obviously that you're kind of aware of and 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 uh, sort of experience some potential challenges there definitely it's a bit of a nightmare and I think from everyone's point of view particularly for clinicians looking to refer I think it's a real minefield because they don't often really know what they're looking for um but they're very aware that there's bad you know, there's bad advice out there and they want to make sure they're going to the right place. Um, I think what's really interesting is I'm now starting to get more referrals through from vets directly. But a lot of the time it's clients finding, you know, the people themselves and finding me themselves and saying, you know, please, can I get a referral and having to go back and then I contact their vets and ask for one. But as you say, sometimes in the notes and things, it says like we recommend that they see a behaviourist. But we wouldn't say if a dog broke its leg, we wouldn't like say to the owner, oh, you should probably, you know, get someone to fix that and just leave it with them to go and sort it out. Um, so it is hard. And I say it's an unregulated industry. Um, anyone can call themselves anything, really. Um, you know, we, we still have that issue with some of our, you know, in practice roles, you know, with our nurses and things. We still don't have protected titles. So it is tricky. Um I'm actually a trustee for the Animal Behaviour and Training Council, um, who are a regulatory and sort of representative body for behaviour and training industry. And essentially their aim is to maintain the welfare of animals who are undergoing behaviour and uh, training um, support. And they are trying very hard to uh, get some regulation introduced, but I think that's probably quite a way down the road um but if people want to know where to find people going to the abtc website is the best place to go um it gives information about the different um roles that they have registers for so you can work out who you actually need do you need a trainer do you need a behaviorist etc um and then i say you can access their registers on there so um so i'm registered as a clinical animal behaviorist and a veterinary behaviorist um and you can get loads of information from from that site. Um, so I'm directly uh, a member of the um, APBC. So you sort of everyone's a member of a different body, but then they're under that ABTC umbrella. ABTC really just makes sure that everyone is assessed and qualified, and um, everyone should be up at the same standard. Um, so that's a really good place to go, and they are really trying to get in with the veterinary community a bit more. Um, they're actually in talks with the RCVS of potentially coming under that umbrella for the vet-led team, um, which would be really, really good. Because um, I think if if nothing else, it it kind of puts it into vets' minds that, ah, oh, actually, there is a place I can go and get some advice. And I think that's all we that's all we need. I think that's, that's you know, and, and for me, so we'll put that, we'll definitely put those, links in the show notes I think that's what we need I think just getting the message out that there's a place you can go that gives you information about who you should be you know that's all I would look for you know what I mean as a it needs to be user-friendly us vets like it to be simple <laughs> so <laughs> um you know I mean it's true though isn't it we just need to sort of I think just streamlining and simplifying the process it sounds like 
Um, so that's uh, that all sounds extremely extremely positive. Um, okay, so um, we uh, uh, we ask a few questions that we like to ask uh, everyone that comes on the podcast. Um, we've got some new ones. Um, so I don't know. We'll just run through those just to finish up if that's okay. So um, my first question is, what would you like to be when you grow up? Um, in Snowdonia with loads of animals. Oh, <laughs> love that. In the mountains mm. with loads of sort of waifs and strays. <laughs> oh, it sounds Let's great. Do, do you know, I, <laughs> do you know, can I, sorry, this is really random. I'm going to just be random. When I was, when I was um, very much younger, when I was 18 or 19, I worked in this bar in Edinburgh and um, I knew lots of people then, as you do when you're kind of young, you know, having the, the time of our lives. Just last night, I sort of reconnected with one of those guys on, on Facebook. And I mean, this is like very many years later. Um, and he is now random. He's now a drag queen in Benidorm. But that's not the that's not the important part of the story. He has an animal sanctuary. That's what he does. So he does drag queen by night and has this whole animal sanctuary by day that he has created and basically uses his drag queen money to like just rescue all these horses, donkeys, dogs, cats. And that's his life. I mean, how brilliant is that? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So that's true. That, so that how I was like, oh my, because he was actually saying, well, he was saying you should come out. We, we have vets come out here and do X, Y, Z. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. Let's <laughs> go to Benidorm. Yeah. So anyway, sorry to so Snowdonia. Lots of. I'm not suggesting, Sophie. You have to become a drag queen. I'm just saying that. You... I don't know how much um, market there is for that in Snowdonia. As well. I don't, no, I don't think there is. I think no. I think just stick with just being you and uh, saving the animals. Okay. Um, so uh, the you know we we talk a lot on the podcast about kind of inspirations and and people that have influenced our careers and different things. I wonder if you would be able to share a little bit about who inspires you? I guess, you know, we've already mentioned Sam Lindley, who, as I say, is brilliant. And I think for me, she really sort of started off that interest and in just seeing someone doing something different. Um, and also um, Helen Zulch, who is the calmest, nicest person. Um, so she's a, a vet and a behaviourist. She just left. Uh, Lincoln University when I started but she came back and did a few lectures with us um, and she was actually then working for Dogs Trust so I overlapped with her again when I worked at Dogs Trust and she just always has a plan she's always calm she's very very positive um, and it's a very high stress role you know she gets a lot of demands from a lot of different angles and she's just amazing at just focusing on the job in hand, making sure, you know, the dog's welfare is as good as it can be and is brilliant at explaining things and sort of really getting people on board. Um, but yeah, she's just got this sort of zen about her, which I would love. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Um, okay, so if if you were, obviously your career has taken a, a wonderful direction that, that obviously suits you and that's the most important thing that you found your your spot um, if you were to do all of this again and you were to to have that opportunity to apply to vet school and go to the RVC would you still put in that application would you still have gone to vet school thinking about it now yes I would because I think I feel like I sort of straddled kind of two professions and you know and I can I feel really lucky that I think I'm in quite a unique there's only about 18 or 20 registered veterinary behaviorists in the UK so in quite a unique position to really bring those communities and professions together and I think that's not really the same if I was just doing behavior so I still feel that the veterinary background and my very kind of niche role now hugely hugely benefits from that veterinary background and it wouldn't be the same if I was if I was working as a behaviorist otherwise um but I think there have been times when I just thought I don't know <laughs> like I don't know if I'd do this all again but I think having then found that role it you know it's been a fantastic experience and I wouldn't be where I am now without everything I've learned while I was in practice before mm. No, and I think that's good. I think that that's probably the same sort of thing for a lot of people. It's, once you find your bit, you know, you're, it's kind of all makes a bit more sense. Um, 
but the journey getting there is not always easy is it i mean it can be a challenge so as far as kind of advice that you would give to people listening um you know uh, pick your favorite it's always hard to choose one but if you had to give one piece of advice to people listening what would that be yes follow your gut like it doesn't matter if you don't fit in it doesn't matter if people think that you're sort of trying to save the world and being strong-headed like just keep going like you you've got to do what's right for you and I think I'm a massive believer in following your gut instinct and I think when you know you know and that might be like those split I sometimes have those sort of split minute decisions where I've sort of suddenly just thought do you know what I don't want this job anymore like I'm gonna I'm I'm going to move. And yes, go home and sleep on it and think about it. But usually when I've made that decision, I go with it. And I think we need to be a bit braver at trusting ourselves. And it's okay to say it's okay not to fit in. It's okay to do things a bit differently to what maybe is expected of you. You've got to do what's right for you. And I really agree with that kind of when you know, you know. And I think that's true with a lot of these decisions about you know like you say you can go and kind of ruminate on things but in that moment and I think you're absolutely right and I've experienced that recently in that moment where you're like I just this job is not for me you know you just it's probably not for you you know I mean it takes a bit of time you know but it's true when you know you know so yeah thank you so much for that well listen thanks so much for all of that today so I it just so many interesting points and so many um just really interesting insights I think just to to hear it from from a perspective that we've not actually heard it from before, you know, in, from that kind of behavioural side of things, it, it, it's really, really interesting. Um, and I really particularly love that kind of stuff about, you know, the just that patient focus and 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 like we said, Karen, getting rid, getting rid of a bit of the shame and the judgment as well, for sure. So, no, really great. So, thank you so much for for being with us today. That's great. Thank you for having me. massive thank you to Sophie for chatting today just a really interesting chat and and something very different from our our, our our usual conversation so we're really grateful for that we are going to go into our clinical segment now where we're going to finish up our discussion on urolithiasis we've been chatting about the approach to to stones within the urinary tract and um last week we spoke about struvate uh, struvate struvite and oxalate stones and this week, I just want to round up the discussion talking about a couple of the other stones that we can see uh, within the urinary tract, particularly in dogs. So the first one we're going to talk about is urate. Now, um, urate, uh, just to, to kind of go back to some of the, the first principles, we talked about uh, fundamentally the difference between seeing crystals in a urine sample versus seeing actual stones within the urinary tract, right? And um, we said that you can see particularly struvite crystals as a normal finding in urine. And actually some of the calcium oxalate crystals can be a normal finding in urine as well. When we start to see urate crystals in the urine, then we maybe start to think, oh, that might not quite be just as normal a finding as maybe finding some struvite crystals. And it may prompt us to then look and see whether there could be uh, the formation of urate stones within within the urinary tract. When we talk about urate, we kind of talk about there's a, a variety of different compositions of stones under that umbrella, composing of uric acid and xanthine, lots of different things. But fundamentally, ammonium urate is about 96 or even 86% um, of the, the urate stones that we generally will be finding. Appearance-wise, they tend to be small and smooth, um, and they sometimes have a, have a kind of greenish browny colour, um, you know, as, as far as their, their appearance. Xanthine uroliths, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more, uh, of, often actually are quite yellowy um, or yellowy brown in colour. Um, they, as far as what you might see on radiographs, generally they're radiolucent um so more challenging particularly to see with radiographs but again you know it will depend a little bit on composition and size um and it doesn't mean that you can't see them if you do take uh, radiographs of these patients as far as the population of dogs that we see then they tend to be 
a little bit older with urate. They don't tend to be to be very young, uh, as with many of the stones, actually. So the average age of around four to five is the patients that we're seeing uh, with urate uh, stones. As far as the dogs that we see uh, with these stones, the poster child of the urate stone is obviously the Dalmatian. And we know that in the Dalmatian particularly, there are um, there is a, a genetic differences, which mean that they, the way that their liver and kidneys handle um, the metabolism or the, the um, metabolic pathway that, that leads to the formation of some of these uh, components of these stones um, is going to be different. So um, that certainly is um, a, a, a breed that you would be very much switched on to um, the uh, potential formation of urate uh, stones. The other main category of patients that we're seeing as far as the formation of urate stones are going to be patients with hepatic dysfunction. Now, when we say hepatic dysfunction, really, um, we can see dogs that genuinely have uh, liver disease, uh, you know, and and their liver is just not working properly. They can sometimes form urate stones, but actually that's not as common as the the real patients with liver problems that develop uh, urate stones are going to be those with vascular liver abnormalities. So basically, portosystemic shunt patients. And their liver is dysfunctioning because the blood supply to the liver is, is messed up. So really, we've got on one side um, patients that have inherent um, alterations of urate uh, transport within the body. Uh, and that would be, as we said, notably the Dalmatian. But other breeds that we know are, are predisposed to urates are English Bulldogs, the Black Russian Terrier, the Miniature Schnauzer, um, the Shih Tzu and the, York, the Yorkshire Terrier as well. So those breeds of dogs will form urate stones, not necessarily with any hepatic dysfunction. But the other big group of patients with urate stones are going to be those with portosystemic shunts. And actually, we probably underestimate, you know, we, we think of portosystemic shunts as being these sort of runty, shunty little puppies that will not grow and be poor doers and all that kind of stuff. And that certainly is true. Um, but you've got to remember that there are dogs with portosystemic shunts that present later in life um, and can, their, their primary presenting problem can actually be uh, urinary problems. And, and I've seen a number of dogs presenting because of urinary obstruction as the primary problem um, and they've ultimately had urate stones and they've gone on to be diagnosed with a portosystemic shunt. So I think that is definitely important to, um, important to remember. The other sort of uh, stone that we need to then think about in this kind of uh, category is the xanthine stones. But to be honest with you, what we actually, where we most typically see xanthine being formed, ironically, are those patients, those Dalmatians, for instance, that are on treatment for urate stones. So they're on um, the drug allopurinol normally. And actually, because that allopurinol alters that metabolic pathway, they are then predisposed randomly to forming xanthine stones. So actually one of the key things that you have to do when you've got dogs who form urate stones on allopurinol, then um, you need to make sure that they're not then forming uh, forming xanthine, uh, xanthine stones. So when it comes to dealing with urate, um, those dogs with hepatic dysfunction, uh, portosystemic shunts, um, really the main priority in those patients is to actually manage their underlying disease. So manage their portosystemic shunts, because that is going to be the way that you are going to stop them forming urate stones. For those patients um, that have inherent um, transporter defects like the Dalmatian um, and are inherently susceptible to developing urate stones, then you're um, 
key priorities are to de de decrease the urinary excre excretion of uric acid um, and also the, the urinary excretion of ammonium ions. Another strategy uh, that you can use is urinary alkalinization. And obviously, always um, increasing uh, urine volume, uh, decreasing urine um, specific gravity is never going to be a, a, the wrong thing uh, to do. As far as kind of target pHs for dissolving urate uh, stones, it's approximately seven. Um, so you want to be um, uh, potentially using... Uh, substances like sodium bicarbonate or potassium citrate to achieve that optimum pH. To be honest with you, I would be starting uh, with diet, uh, keeping a close eye on the pH, but uh, not necessarily immediately jumping in with using things like sodium bicarbonate and potassium citrate. Uh, that can, can potentially come um, later on. So I, I would be starting ultimately with, with dietary management in these cases. And there is uh, definitely an opportunity to think about dissolving urate stones. But we obviously have to put that in the context of individual patients. And it may still be very appropriate to remove these stones if they are causing currently uh, issues with obstruction. So diet-wise, diets like Hills UD are, are perfect for this sort of, sort of situation. Supplemental water, as always, is always going to be a, a winner. And then apart from optimizing the pH with the bicarbonate or the, the potassium citrate, the other main strategy we have with urate is to use the drug allopurinol. And again, that is specifically having an effect on that um, pathway of, of, of metabolism which will stop the predisposition or the formation of urate stones, but may actually, ironically, as we said, uh, cause xanthine stones to be formed. So just be uh, careful that they are, not, uh, they are not then forming. Just to mention, the very last little uh, stone that I want to mention is um, cysteine. And actually, one of the reasons I want to mention cysteine is, is because actually, its popularity, so to speak, has actually increased uh, over the last sort of 10 years. So you will see this, you will see this more. Again, seeing cysteine crystals on urine sediment examination would definitely not be considered a normal finding and would definitely raise your index of suspicion of, of maybe having to go and look for actual stones. Cysteine form these really beautiful uh, hexagonal uh, crystals. Um, so they're pretty, they're probably the easiest to, to, to look at because they are so distinctive and actually very pretty. Um, so they would definitely be making me think, hold on, I, I need to look for potential problem here. As far as dogs that are predisposed to the cysteine stone formation, uh, the Newfoundland is probably the one that you will hear most commonly spoken about. There is also, uh, and, and actually there's there's been a, an autosomal recessive uh, found a genetic uh, um, f difference found in Newfoundlands that make them predisposed to cysteine formation. A mutation has also actually been found in Labradors. So those would be two breeds that I would be um, potentially keeping on the on the radar. Cysteine is amenable to medical dissolution, dissolve. I don't, dissolution, is that actually a word? I keep saying it, I'm sure, I hope it is a word. They are amenable to dissolving. Again, the context of that is going to be to do with the patient and whether actually they, they sometimes just need the stone surgically removed. Uh, so that's always got to be taken into consideration. Again, always thinking about increasing water, increasing urine volume, potentially again focusing on increasing urine pH to around 7 or 7.5. Again, you can use strategies such as potassium citrate to do that. Diet-wise, you want a markedly protein-restricted diet and, and that's going to help to decrease cysteine excretion within the urine. And really the diet to do that would be Hills UD. That would be the diet that I think is most appropriate for that purpose. 
there are some dietary management um or not dietary drug management options that have been used for cysteine um particularly kind of stopping cysteine formation in the future and those drugs uh, are potentially ones that I would not be reaching for too uh, too quickly. D-penicillamine has been used um, in, in cases of cysteine stones. Uh, the other drug that you will see um, spoken about, uh, which I can never pronounce, tyoprenonin. It's a N to mercaptopro. Pinolin glycine. I mean, who can even say that? So that's a drug that I've used once in a dog that had recurrent cysteine stones and regretted using because actually, no, I've used it twice, I think. Um, but actually with that particular drug that I can't say the name of, clinical uh, side effects, aggression, myopathy, uh, anemia, thrombocytopenia have all been reported. And actually the two dogs I used it in, one became very aggressive and the other one got this really bad myopathy and its jaw dropped open. So not necessarily something I would be rushing to use. I think dietary management, optimizing urine pH, increasing water are all really important uh, strategies with cysteine. And the other uh, main thing to remember in cysteine, the absolute vast majority of cysteine dogs are going to be male. And it is thought that castrating uh, these dogs will help to reduce cysteine recurrence and that is why actually one of the reasons why potentially stone prediction is important because if you are going to take a dog to surgery and take its cysteine stone out then actually castrating it at the same time is the right thing to do so castration in male dogs and the majority of them will be cysteine formers uh, then I would be castrating them at the same time. So we've come to the end of our little Euralith discussion. So we, we are, we're going to leave Euralith uh, there. Uh, so I hope that has been helpful. Uh, and um, we'll pick up a, a new clinical topic next time. A massive thank you again to Sophie for uh, chatting today. It really has been uh, a, a really interesting conversation. We're very, very grateful for her taking time to talk to us. We're also very grateful to all of you for listening. And, and that will always be um, something that just blows me away that people do tune in and listen. And we're, we're extremely grateful for your support. Find out more about VTX and what we do, then head over to our website at www.vtx-cpd.com. And if you're on social media, do give us a like, follow and share on our social media platforms. So a uh, big thank you to you all again. Uh, I hope you have an amazing uh, Christmas and a, a new year and, and enjoy uh, hopefully some time off. Uh, and I'll see you all very soon. <laughs>